Okay, can everybody hear me all right? Thank you, Barb. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that wonderful introduction, by the way. That's very kind of you. Uh, those of you who were here last year might remember I showed a lot of stuff, but not videos. <laughs> uh, they didn't go through so well, so we've worked on that for this year. I think we'll be okay. Uh, my name is Barb Mays, and as uh, Ken mentioned, I am a meteorologist, but also a climate person in our forecast office in Omaha, and I like to do my best to link them both together. Uh, climate and weather have a lot of connections. So I'm going to talk a bit about uh, the severe weather that we had in the area last year. Those of you in the area will know that won't take very long. Uh, we didn't have a whole lot. Uh, so we'll talk also a little bit about the outlook for this year. Uh, we make some climate predictions, and we can say a few things at least about what's going on. Whoop, I went too fast. There we go. Okay, I'm with it now. Uh, we had a few kind of active days last year. Uh, it was a slow and quiet season overall for us here in the Central Plains, uh, especially right in the heart of our normal tornado season, May and June. It was really kind of quiet for a while. Uh, we did have a tornado outbreak on March 23rd, and uh, those of you who were here last year might remember this too. On the, on the day of the Central Plains Severe Weather Symposium, we had not only a couple of tornadoes and some severe weather in eastern Nebraska, but blizzard conditions and blizzard warnings out uh, central and western Nebraska, quite a day. Uh, and then we had the uh, June 17th tornado that barely missed Grand Island and barely missed Aurora. Those are really the highlight events from 2009, so those are the ones I'm going to talk about. And then, when I get done with that, I'm going to look ahead to 2010. We can use some things that have some predictive powers uh, to say something about our severe weather seasons in advance. Uh, it's not a perfect science by any means. Uh, it's a totally different kind of forecasting than weather forecasting. But what we can do, we look at things like El Nino, which some of you might have heard about. Uh, we'll talk more about it. We can look at our ground and see our ground conditions, if the soil is wet or dry. Uh, well, the fact that Vortex 2 is out, that might be a bad sign. We'll talk about that, too. And I'll give you at least some ideas for what kind of severe weather season we might be able to anticipate this year. So let's talk a little bit about the tornado drought of 2009. Uh, we did have a below-average season here in Nebraska. We only had 39 tornadoes last year. Uh, for the previous 30 years before that, we averaged 51, so we were quite a bit below normal. Uh, our most active day in Nebraska was March 23rd with nine tornadoes in the state. Um, but we only had uh, three tornadoes between April 4th and June 5th, almost two whole months without uh, hardly any activity. We had three very weak and short-lived F-Zeros out west, and that's it. Uh, those were basically, for those of you who kind of follow the terms, they were basically landspout tornadoes. They were very short-lived, weak, um, and not great supercell thunderstorms. Uh, nationwide, though, the, the year was pretty much near normal. Uh, it was bad in the plains during the tornado season, which really frustrated the research efforts of the Vortex 2 project. Um, we went through a few weeks in May where we didn't have any watches issued, any watches. You know how hard it is to go through the month of May, or even a part of May, and go in the entire United States and not have watches out? It is very difficult. We went through 10 days of no watches. Lots of time with no tornado watches. Just a very slow season. At the time, you really expect things to be kicking up. Uh, let's talk a bit about March 23rd, though. We thought we were off to a pretty big start at this time last year. March 23rd came around. We had 10 tornadoes in eastern Nebraska and also western Iowa. That's a different number than the one before. That's on purpose because we're counting Iowa, too. Uh, that's our forecast area in Omaha. Uh, they were mainly weak tornadoes. We did have one EF2, but the rest were F0s and F1s. Uh, we had eight people injured near Eagle, Nebraska. That was uh, the EF1, I believe. And uh, 
those were the only tornado injuries in the state in, uh, during the year 2009. So that's good news at least. We don't uh, have a lot of activity. People aren't in harm's way. The supercell that produced that tornado in Eagle, Nebraska passed directly over the Omaha metro area and it didn't touch down. The storm was producing tornadoes basically uh, from southeast of Lincoln all the way up to the city limits. The storm cycled. We had wall clouds, certainly. We had rotation there, but we did not get a tornado touchdown in the metro. For us in Omaha, that was a close call because that storm could have easily cycled just a little bit differently, and it would have changed our situation entirely. So this is a radar loop from that day. It's going to follow the storm, so you're going to see the ground moving underneath it. And uh, here, I like to jump in front of the screen. This is going to start at the beginning. There's Lincoln going through. That's approaching Omaha, cycles as it goes over Omaha, and then produces one last tornado, the longest one of its track, actually, uh, and the EF2 in the path. It uh, took out a house just west of Missouri Valley, Iowa. Um, not a bad day for severe weather overall. Let's see if some of you remember what happened, too. This was the tornado path as it went through the Nebraska side. You I, I kind of call this like a Morse code tornado. This storm was moving very quickly, and none of these tornadoes were on the ground for that long. It was just kind of dot, 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 all the way down the ground. Um, we went from uh, Lincoln here, uh, EF1s, EF2s, all the way up and across the state, uh, just before it hits Omaha, which is up at the top. So a uh, fast-moving storm produces several tornadoes as it cycles, most of which were fairly weak, thank goodness. Most of them didn't hit much of anything, also a good thing, but a few problems out there. So let's take a look at what happened with the weather that day. This is a weather map with Nebraska here in the middle. This is a big low pressure system and you can see all these lines of equal pressure. When these are very packed together like they are here, that indicates that the winds are strong. Some of you might remember this day because we had a lot of winds before the thunderstorms even got here. We had 50 to 60 mile an hour wind gusts that day. It was very warm, pushing up that nice warm air from the south, very windy, and then all of a sudden in the afternoon, very stormy. Uh, looking at to the upper levels, this is basically our jet stream here in the shading, and we had a nice strong jet going right into eastern Nebraska, pointing right at us as it went around a very strong upper level low pressure system. And what that means for us, when you have these very strong systems that can get some moisture ahead of them, this is a very typical sort of early spring type of system. Very strong. How many of you uh, know the words cape? Instability. We need a couple of things to make good thunderstorms. One of them is instability, which is warm, moist air near the ground and cooler and drier air aloft. Another thing we need is wind shear. We need the winds to change their direction or change their speed with height. On that day, we did not have a lot of instability. It was pretty warm. I mean, for March, it wasn't bad. It was in the 60s. Um, but these, you know, there's not a whole lot of contours here. It was a little bit of instability. But what really made it a big day was that there was a ton of shear just near the ground. In that lowest part near the ground, there was a lot of shear that day. And this is also a pretty typical sort of early spring type of system. We had just enough instability to make the storms fire off. And when they fired off, there was so much wind shear right near the ground that they could spin in a hurry. And you'll notice that this instability is focused, if I could reach up there, right where the storms tracked through, right across eastern Nebraska into Omaha and then into western Iowa before they dissipated. Now, let's take a quick peek at the April 4th Severe Weather Symposium from last year. Uh, just a few tornadoes, uh, EF0 is very weak and short-lived, 
But you know, this was a very strong low pressure system again, a lot like this classic early spring type of system. Blizzard conditions in northwest Nebraska. We had snow in Omaha the next day. Our temperatures fell from the mid-50s to around 30 degrees by the next day, by April 5th. So this was a very abrupt weather change, right? We get these in the spring. This is kind of normal for us at that time of year. But I threw it in here because I thought it would be cool to remember back to a year ago. And how many of you uh, had snow that, that later that night or the next day? You guys remember having snow in April? It was winter last year, too. It just wasn't quite as bad. <laughs> and by the way, Ken, I don't like the snow any better. That's why I left Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> so again, a very quiet period for a very long time. But we did eventually sort of end the tornado drought. Uh, we did have tornadoes in Nebraska on June 15th, just a couple of them. Uh, but June 17th was a more active day. We had eight tornadoes. It was our second most active day in Nebraska. One of them was an EF2, a couple EF0s and EF1s. But the big story there was a near miss of Grand Island and Aurora. Uh, there were tornadoes touching down on either side of Grand Island and actually a little bit within the city limits. Um, and that tornado tracked from just west of Grand Island to a mile and a half west of, of Aurora. That's very close. That's a very close call. And what that goes to show is even in a slow year, major things can happen. Towns can be impacted and interstate can be crossed like Scott was just talking about before me. Uh, it only takes one really bad event, only one tornado, to make it a really bad year for somebody. So we might talk about whether a season has more or less of a chance to be active, but, you know, in some ways it kind of doesn't matter if that one comes right through your neighborhood. Uh, these near misses are kind of scary for us, really, um, especially because these tornadoes not only had a near miss of Grand Island and Aurora, but they paralleled the interstate. They paralleled Interstate 80 for miles. Luckily, it was slow moving, so people had a good shot to see it. Uh, also, because it was slow moving and near a major interstate, there were a lot of storm chasers there that day, and a lot of people documented this tornado. A lot of people got footage of it. So, um, geez, do I need someone to hit the button on that? To make my video play? Sorry, I should have warned somebody about that. If you could hit that, Scott, that'd be great. Thank you. This is a video of the Aurora tornado. Shot by a storm chaser. There we go. This tornado was the one that was uh, EF2 when it was raided. Hit a couple of uh, houses and also a the Purina plant, I believe it was. Uh, not only was it close to the interstate, it was right along uh, Highway 34. So a lot of people got pretty close to this, probably closer than they should have been. Uh, and that's an inter interesting shot over there. That is the dust being carried up into the thunderstorm. So it was a cool little storm. Uh, good to observe. This is going to be a radar loop of it. Again, we're going to start with the storm and follow it as it travels across. Uh, it started up north of Kearney. There were a couple of small, short-lived tornadoes up there. And then it started to cycle itself and started to look a little worrisome right by Grand Island. We get one more nice hook in there. It's between Grand Island and Aurora. And then the storm dissipated right as it hit the Omaha area, because, of course, we do that to thunderstorms, I guess. One more look at it there. We've got a good hook on the radar. That's a good sign that we might be having some rotation right there. And then it wraps up, and that's about the end of it. Now let's look at the weather setup for this particular day. Oh, we have the tornado tracks first. Sorry about that. 
This is Carney here at the bottom. I want to thank Hastings' office, by the way, for helping me uh, get, it, get these together. Had those few weak tornadoes touch down northeast of Kearney, north of Gibbon, if that's a familiar spot for you. Then we travel into Grand Island, and this is a tornado going just on the south side of Grand Island, sort of barely in the area. And then the final one there, that's the, uh, the big guy, the one that a lot of people got footage of, curving right around Highway 34, just north of Interstate 80. A lot of people got to see that storm. Um, so let's take a look at the weather map for the day. You'll notice a little bit of a difference. We've got a low pressure here, but the bars there, the lines are not very tight together. This is a much weaker kind of a system. But there is a warm front in the area. There's warmer, moister air to the south, not quite so warm and moist up to the north. And that tornado formed right along this warm front, moved close to it. If you look at those upper levels, again, the jet, remember before that jet stream was very strong. We had these bright colors pointing right into eastern Nebraska. We don't quite have that this time. The flow is a lot weaker. The, the, the ripples are a lot more subtle. So summer tornadoes tend to come from these systems that are a little more subtle, a little maybe harder to, to see exactly where things are going to pop up. Now this is another difference between the two. This is going to be your instability here, your cape. And there's a lot of it. For those of you who like the numbers, that is 5,000 joules per kilogram of cape. Lots of instability right up along that warm front. Very different from the last one when there was hardly any. And we do have some wind shear, especially near the ground. That wind shear was increasing uh, as we went into the evening hours. And that helped get those tornadoes going as we got later and later in the evening. So, those are, I wish I could tell you more about what happened last year, but if we're looking in the area, that's really about it. Uh, it was really unfortunate for Vortex, too, that we didn't have better activity in the planes where they can function, uh, where they can do their research, you know, use their mobile radars, drop their pods that measure uh, in the path of a tornado. Uh, it would be great if we had a good active season in places where Vortex, too, can do their research. Um, People kind of laugh, though, because when Vortex the first time around operated in the 90s, those were two very slow years for severe weather. And I think they're all a little nervous right now that, you know, geez, another two slow years, they're never going to let us run around again, right? This, it can't be this slow again. We can't have these two slow years, right? Well, it can happen. Let's look at some of the things that drive weather, uh, that drive tornado activity. First, we have these long-lasting weather patterns. Here's one for you guys that you might remember. This winter, we had a long-lasting weather pattern that affected eastern Nebraska by dragging cold air down from the north and a lot of moisture coming up, so we had a lot of snow. That pattern hung on forever, it felt like. Uh, those long-lasting weather patterns, they're affected by climate signals out there, but sometimes they just kind of lock in and block themselves in. Um, so we can get some idea of forecasting uh, whether or not a long-lasting pattern is going to continue. Other things, the local surface conditions, I mentioned this before. Uh, if the ground is wet, or certainly if it's snowy, that's going to make a difference if, uh, if it's going to favor having tornadoes or not. Dry conditions, too, will make a difference. Um, we have uh, very small effects also that, that determine whether a thunderstorm produces a tornado or not. Um, we can look at some bigger patterns to see if maybe a pattern looks like it's good for producing thunderstorms. But sometimes whether that thunderstorm produces a tornado or not depends on very small things. It might depend on the gust front of another thunderstorm in the area. Uh, it might depend on uh, a little pocket where there's a lot of moisture right near the ground and 
helps the instability. And these are things that are very hard to see until right up at the event. And even then, sometimes they're hard to see. Um, so some of these features we can sort of predict, and we can predict them maybe a couple weeks, a month, or a couple months in advance, uh, especially when we get to the long-lasting weather patterns or start to get to the climate patterns, things like El Nino and La Nina. Uh, we can predict those. We can't always predict those really small, transient things. So we can't tell you, uh, you know, we're going to make a forecast that Nebraska is going to have, say, 46 tornadoes this year. Um, because of all these little features that make so much of a difference. But what we can at least do is look at whether the pattern is going to favor having thunderstorms. And if the pattern we're going to go into favors having thunderstorms, then we can tell if it's going to favor, you know, well, if we have thunderstorms, we have probably have a better shot at tornadoes in Nebraska, right? So let's look first at El Nino. How many of you have heard the words El Nino before I talked today? That is a great number. There are a few who haven't, so let me take a minute and explain. There is a cycle between warm conditions in the Pacific Ocean and cold conditions. It's very near the equator, so it almost makes you think, you know, geez, it's so far away, what does it matter? Those warm conditions are called an El Nino, and the cold conditions are the La Nina. And they affect our weather patterns here in the United States and actually around the globe by affecting where the jet stream goes, mainly. So, how does that affect us? Well, we know that a jet stream has something to do with the weather patterns in the area. Uh, if the jet stream's way up in Canada, we're probably warmer. If the jet stream is crashing through us, we're probably stormy. So we can use a little bit of prediction about where the jet stream might be and other features that are impacted by the jet stream. And that helps us gauge an idea of what our tornado activity might be. Now, because we're kind of looking at uh, patterns, what we're doing is changing the odds for tornadoes. We're saying, here's our, our normal year. And what are the odds that we're going to be above it or below it? And do they change? It's not a guarantee either way. You know, if I say we have odds of lower than normal activity, that's not a guarantee for lower than normal activity. But it weighs the dice, right? Some of you probably have rolled some dice before. It weighs the dice. So let's look at some weather patterns. It's okay if you're not used to looking at weather maps because I'm going to explain this all to you here. This is at the top left here, uh, the upper level pressure patterns. And this is averaged over the whole spring, March, April, May, and June. That's spring to me because that's when tornadoes generally happen in the area. Where we have these lines on top of it, the solid lines mean that we get higher than normal pressure. The dashed lines means that there's lower than normal pressure. So what we're saying in this one is that at upper levels, there's lower than normal pressure here in the Gulf. Now, the airflow changes around a low pressure compared to normal. In our part of the country, when there's a low pressure, things go counterclockwise, right? So if we've got this low here and things are going counterclockwise, we're going to get our air from like Michigan and Ohio, maybe Iowa and Wisconsin. These are not places that are typically warm and moist and rich. Uh, what we'd want, if you were someone who wants thunderstorms, and of course none of us are rooting for thunderstorms, right? We just want to know, right? <laughs> um, if you were a person who was interested in severe weather, what you would be looking for is that flow to come up from the south, nice and warm and strong. And what this is saying is that we're not going to get that very much in an El Nino. Looking at the surface, this is our surface pressure. Normally, we have kind of a lower pressure here on the high plains. 
maybe a higher pressure out here, Bermuda high, you might have heard it called. And in an El Nino, that's a lower pressure there too. So again, we're not getting that nice, rich flow from the Gulf. We get high pressure here on the plains. Well, what happens in high pressure? It's sunny. If you like to be, uh, you know, kind of cool and, and dry and have a nice sunny summer, that's probably a good thing for you. But if uh, you are curious about whether there's going to be severe weather, there's less likely to be severe weather if you're under a high pressure. So that's going to, those combination of factors are going to suppress tornado activity by suppressing thunderstorm activity. The same thing over here. This is looking just a little bit above the ground. This is where we want the nice moisture rich flow coming up off the Gulf of Mexico right into the plains, right? That would mean that we would have probably some thunderstorms going on. Well, during an, an El Nino, that flow gets suppressed down. We don't get that rich flow as strongly off the Gulf, which means that we don't get the odds for severe weather as often. Not to say it never happens. We're not, we can't say that there will never be an active severe weather day in an El Nino year, but the odds don't favor it. The averages don't favor it. So on average, we would have less tornado activity than normal in the plains. Now let's contrast this to a La Nina. Remember, La Nina is when it's cold out there in the Pacific Ocean. In a La Nina, we have this high pressure here in the Gulf states. So we're going to get strong flow at the upper levels from down here in the, in the Mexico and from the southwest. That's southwesterly flow. You might have heard it referred to that by some meteorologists. That's pretty good, usually. And where we have already a little bit of lower pressure here on the high plains, in La Nina, it gets even lower on average. So that means we're usually having some kind of low pressure here. We're going to channel that flow off the Gulf. Low pressure means it's stormy. La Nina years tend to be more stormy. So uh, kind of opposite of the uh, El Nino effect, a La Nina would tend to make us have an active year. It doesn't mean it would happen every year but at least it kind of shifts the odds in that direction. Now, let's look again at the ground. Uh, you've all looked outside recently. It's wet. <laughs> and not only is it wet, but driving down here, I especially saw it, there's still snow on the ground in a lot of places. Well, that's going to keep us cooler near the ground, but it is going to keep moisture near the ground. So these are, you know, what's the effect here? Well, more low-level moisture could be good for setting up instability. Uh, cooler temperatures might not be good. They might be offsetting. I don't know. It's a harder one to say that, you know, there's a direct cause and effect impact. It's just something we need to watch. If there's a lot of dry ground, we tend to heat up quickly, but we don't tend to have a lot of moisture. So that does tend to not be great for producing tornadoes, if one were interested in producing tornadoes. So let's say you have this little wheel, and you can spin that little uh, mouse in the middle. Let's just pretend, I guess. Now, in an average year that's neither La Nina or El Nino, Let's say there'd be an equal number of all the colors on that wheel. You'd have equal chances of getting above normal or below normal or near normal tornado activity. What happens in an El Nino is that you shift the odds. So, you know, you could still spin that wheel and get an active season, but you're probably more likely to get the quieter or the normal type of season. So that's how it works. It isn't a guarantee. Climate forecasting is very different from weather forecasting in that way. We forecast odds in climate. So what I'm going to, I guess I'm telling you, is that the odds are that we have a quieter year. I will also tell you, and I didn't throw pictures in of this, the Weather Service's Climate Prediction Center for the summer months here, the late spring and summer months, has forecasted a higher than usual chance of being 
cooler than normal and wetter than normal. Again, that's just odds. They also forecasted a higher than normal chance of being above normal this winter for temperatures, and well, that didn't really work out so well here. <laughs> Although, in fairness to the Climate Prediction Center, if you go just a little bit north of here, it actually did work out. We got locked into that pattern. We just couldn't get those warmer temperatures once we had all that snow on the ground. But the odds shift. It's not a perfect forecast. It's not an absolute. But that's what we've got. So I have several people to thank for doing graphics, including Brian standing in the back. Also the folks at the Weather Service in Hastings for helping with the June 17th stuff. Uh, I probably have some time for questions. And if you think of any later, my email address is also up there. So thank you. Thank you, Barb. You can see why I invited her back. It was very important to look ahead. And as she said, and as I've told people, forecasts are not contracts. <laughs> They're what we most likely think is going to happen. At this point, we can, if there are some questions, entertain those. I'd like to get the mic to you, though. So please raise your hand, and I will get to you. I see one right here on the aisle. Since we've had such an unusually cold winter, even as far south as the Gulf, the, the water temperatures, I think, have decreased some, and they're saying that might have an effect on our lack of severe weather, maybe over the whole central U.S., because it was not that warm Gulf water that we usually have. Uh, you were talking about the temperatures in the Gulf? I didn't yes. quite hear clearly. Okay. Um, yes, the temperatures in the Gulf do affect things a little bit. Uh, they affect how much moisture is going to get into that flow coming up off the Gulf. So yes, uh, if the temperatures are cool in the Gulf, that might also skew us toward maybe not so great of a season. Um, your question also reminded me that El Nino is currently in place. It's still there. It's still of moderate strength, but it's weakening slightly. And what happens in the spring here is going to depend a lot on what happens to that El Nino. If that El Nino comes crashing back to normal, it's going to affect us a lot less than if it stays kind of you know, there you know, at moderate strength or so. Another question. Need to see a hand. It's always in the back row. Way up there. Okay, be real loud and then we'll repeat your question. Thanks. The question was typically how long do we expect an El Nino or a La Nina season to last? Uh, an average one, a typical one, will last from, say, the late summer or early fall of one year up through about the spring of the next year. But there are some that have spanned several years. They maybe get a little weaker in the summer and then ramp up again. Uh, and we're at the worst time of the year right now in the spring for predicting whether or not that will happen. It's the hardest time for the computer models to know it. So uh, I can say we've been in this one since uh, late summer of last year, but I don't have a good feel for how long it will still be with us. Great question. Any other questions? Yes, in the back, let me get the mic to you, please. People up front need to ask questions so I don't have to run back here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start paying you to do that. There you go. How big an area does the El Nino cover? And uh, are we taking the temperature of that uh, how often? How big of an area does the El Nino cover? Uh, it covers a swath of the Pacific Ocean near the equator. Uh, it's several hundred miles, several hundred miles long. Uh, it, it depends on the El Nino, whether it's a little bit more east or west. It's usually kind of around the central Pacific Ocean. And uh, the second part of your question was? How much of a variation in temperature makes it an El Nino? Uh, that is half a degree above the average temperature for the season. 
that makes it an El Nino or not. Um, then there's different levels of strength. If it's one degree above, that makes it of a moderate strength. If it's one and a half degrees above normal, that makes it strong. The episode we just had peaked at, I believe, 1.8 degrees above normal, so it did peak as a strong episode. Oh, you've got one in the back again, Ken, sorry. <laughs> All right, I believe the lady has asked if we can keep Vortex 2 as a suppression device for tornadoes. <laughs> Uh, I think the answer is if you pay them enough. <laughs> <laughs>